Hi everyone, we're back. We're recording this on um, New Year's Eve and we're just going to reflect. We're going to have some time to look back at the House of Hades, to look back at this year of, I don't know, writing a Percy Jackson podcast and also look forward to what is to come. Welcome back, everyone. What a delightful, calm, reflective episode that we were recording at 6.30 p.m. on New Year's Eve. I'm so (laughs) happy to be here with my co-host to discuss the House of Hades, the past and the future of our podcast, and to listen to some (laughs) voice messages that y'all have sent us. Um, I know that a lot of people don't listen to these like special episodes slash mailback episodes. So if you're here right now, you're you're the real one. Good for you. <laughs> you're a super fan, frankly. <laughs> Shall we start by talking about the House of Hades? Recapping these arcs. We said we wanted to talk about this book a little bit more because there's so much to reflect on. And we took such a long time to finish it that it we need to look at it all as, as one whole book all at once. The last episode that we did, because we've been breaking them up two perspectives per episode, we were like, wow, like we have not had time to think about like all of these other arcs as we wrap up this episode. So (laughs) the way that we have this written out is a breakdown by character first so that we can sit back and really juxtapose them all together. First and foremost, obviously, we have Percy and Annabeth's Tartarus arc. I don't know if it even makes sense to try to disentangle those two arcs at this point of these two characters. I feel like not really. I don't know (laughs) how or why one would. It it goes against the thesis of our podcast to try to disentangle (laughs) the character development of Percy and Annabeth. Yeah, I feel like this arc we have covered well and also is one that we have followed across every single episode that we've done. They're making their way through hell. They're learning. They're suffering greatly. But also we have time to reflect about the nature of difference. We have to reflect on accountability, about the obligations that they have to future generations and that past generations have to them. We have Bob and Damison who are sources of great comfort to everyone at all times. I believe what you wrote in this outline is a balm on my tired spirit. Oh. Yeah. I think more than anything, <laughs> these characters really are like comforting. It just brings me peace. I want to retire in a little hut made out of dragon skin <laughs> in the middle of Tartarus, looking out on a lake of fire. That's my dream. <laughs> I don't know how much we have to say about this. I want to talk a little bit about their fatal flaws and how they've changed in this book and how we've seen them grow. I mean, I suppose it sort of goes against the idea of a fatal flaw that you can change it or grow out of it but I think that there is growth to their characters that is inherently tied to their flaws because Rick has such a strong idea or at least their Mm -hmm. fatal flaws played a really big part in the first series which for Percy we know is essentially personal loyalty and for Annabeth is hubris and I asked a couple episodes ago in the Spotify question and answer feature to our listeners about if people think that Percy and Annabeth's fatal flaws have changed at all and I feel like we don't actually have a very good grip as a fandom on their fatal flaws and how they play out in this book because it kind of seems like Percybeth's fatal flaw maybe together their combined fatal flaw is a combination of personal loyalty and hubris that leads to neither of them being able to (laughs) give up work 
they have to do everything themselves because they think that they can and also they don't want to put it on other people mm-hmm. which seems like their central problem in this book and what we see them have to get over in letting bob and damison sacrifice themselves yeah and also at the end of the book looking at the rest of the crew and thinking we're relinquishing this to them we may not be the boy and the girl of the prophecy <laughs> and they're also not storm or fire so yeah that's true although why why we have all collectively discounted percy for storm um, doesn't make sense <laughs> it doesn't really but i guess percy is unchoosing the prophecy the way that he chose the first one i feel like this theory about that like combined shared fatal flaw is also really apparent in the famous moment where they both decide that neither of them is going to leave tartarus by themselves and that they together are going to basically die defending bob's honor before Thomason shows up because they do leave together, we can see that there is that balance of them trying to learn from mm-hmm. this and get over it. We, we can see them really riding the edge and doing something that is understandable, but also if they actually did die rather than having one person escape, it would be pretty it would be pretty unfortunate. Like that is the plot of Romeo and Juliet and lots of very um, unpleasant properties. It'd be a flaw that led to their fatality. Indeed, it would be a, a fatal flaw. Um, <laughs> I, I have no problems with this arc though. Perfect. Oh yeah. <laughs> Delightful. We literally cannot talk about one without the other, not only because they spend the entire book together, but because even their flaws are entangled. They have meshed into one team yes. throughout the course of the last eight and now nine books that we've read. They're perfect. It's perfect. It's the greatest love story ever told. <laughs> We've said this before. We stay hesitant of codependency, but also <laughs> acknowledge that in life at a certain point, becoming codependent on other people, on your partners, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And that is what we see here. Something, something, social animals, <laughs> cohesive technologies of... Empathy. <laughs> <laughs> Who's next? Let's turn to Hazel. Hazel's arc is basically just a book-long power-up. Hazel, at the beginning of the book, (laughs) is not a witch. In her first section, she's, like, learning about maybe becoming a witch. I don't know, from Hecate. Next section, she is a mediocre witch, trying it out for the first time in a high-pressure situation. Final (laughs) narrative pocket. She is fully a witch and defeats another witch in a battle of witchcraft. That's basically it, right? It's a battle of witchcraft and bullying. Yes. it's a. <laughs> she becomes a better bully, which we love for her. Full circle from her childhood being bullied. Now she is the bully because she's come into her own power and also become comfortable with, <laughs> you know, um, critiquing those who also have power is what we're seeing from her. Yes. Bullying mm-hmm. to aspire to. Reflecting upon this, I don't feel that she's had a lot of personal growth or that across these chapters we've learned a lot about her or seen her change a lot other than literally the fact that she knows how to use this power. There are some ways in which I feel that there's overlap with her personal growth in the sense that she is a better bully now because that is how her power works. <laughs> <laughs> but am I missing something? <laughs> like, uh, how, how do you feel about this? I feel world-building-wise, it is a little confusing that she already had a lot of specific powers regarding the earth and the precious metals and whatnot, and she is also now a witch. And it makes me curious about the powers of Hecate's children, and if they are the same or very different from what Hazel is doing. But I don't dislike it. I like that the demigods can have things that aren't entirely predictable based on their demigod parent like what jackson always says when he comes on the show yeah i like how it connects her to her mom it connects her to her mom it does feel to me a little bit like rick decided at some point oh wait this metal power thing is weird we need (laughs) (laughs) we gotta pivot rocks is maybe not a power that is comparable to 
summoning lightning or um, controlling the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) Tell that to Toph Beifong, but okay. She's like a full earthbender at this point, in addition to being a witch. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. anyway. Mostly it just makes me want to see Rachel so bad and have a conversation with Rachel and Hazel and Piper, all of them with their magic words. I want to hear from them. Their magic words and their mis-manipulations. That is the closest thing to... Rachel's solo book when? (laughs) The closest thing to, like, real, I feel, character change we've seen out of Hazel is just the fact of her relationship with Piper, I guess? Which is nice, and I love to see it. We also haven't seen it. It's only been told to us. It hasn't been shown. Yes. Maybe someday soon, Rick will get a female co-author, and they will (laughs) co-write a little Girl Squad book. I can't wait. Next up is Nico. The note here in our outline says, Nico, colon, coming out is scary. Nora, it's true. Nico obviously and very prominently did not have his own section of the narration in this book. Not yet. And so his arc, all that we get from Nico as like a character is that he's coming out. He's coming out and he's mad about it. <laughs> and his big arc is coming in the next book. It's definitely, it's coming. It, it wasn't part of this one because we were focused on the seven and all the POVs we were in, but it's coming for Nico. It's very exciting. It's true. He's going to make some friends, maybe. Spoiler. I like the way that it's written in the next book. I like the way that his responses are written in this book across the scope of it. The way that he starts off angry, distant, and he ends it more angry and distant, but also in a slightly different way, literally running away from all of the seven out of a sense of obligation, but also like a desire to not be around them anymore and fulfilling his earlier promise to get them to the doors and then check out. It really works for me, even though I'm also very upset at the way that it was told and the way that um, other people got to tell me about these experiences. Yeah. Leo, colon, has a girlfriend now. So big character development for Leo. (laughs) But also, also he does undergo changes. He loses a lot of his boyish optimism and covering up his feelings with jokes and starts to get a little bit more serious, a little bit more focused, even though that focus is on his girlfriend now. I guess that's the way it happens for some men. It is true that some people in the world become vastly improved by the experience of actually having close emotional relationships with women. Is that my favorite thing to read about no is it aspirational also no does it take a toll on the women involved absolutely where does that leave us with leo i don't know he's better now he's less unpleasant to read he's nicer to frank which is technically part of his character development but that only comes from the fact that he has a girlfriend now he's not from having a girlfriend because he has a girlfriend now (laughs) i was gonna say he's he makes some really amazing things i mean he's the first person to ever find ojidia twice but also i'm not convinced that that wasn't something he could have done a year yes. ago he's always been this good also that hasn't happened yet oh my god i keep i'm sorry i just read <laughs> blood of olympus and i'm confusing everything we all know we Great. get it we know he's gonna find his way back to ojijia <laughs> something something intertwined with the prophecy final breath whatever um uh, <laughs> he has two chapters i think in this book one of them is the ojijia chapters and then the other set is sorry he has two sections in this book one of them is the ojijia set and the first set is a dwarf one mm-hmm. And I think we covered it um, across those two chapters, two sets of chapters. Um, Who's next? Is it Piper? Piper Piper had the fewest chapters in this book. She had one section. It's smack dab in the middle. Because God bless Rick Riordan does not know anything about this woman. (laughs) Rick does not know Piper. 
I think we know Piper more than Rick does at this point. We have ideas about her. We have dreams for her future. We have... Um, he does not know her. He's never met her. It really feels like an afterthought. Everyone else in the book got multiple sections. As I was reflecting back on this, I was like, things happened to her, but did they also, like, was it a large arc? Am I forgetting large chunks of what happened to her? And then we checked back and no. No, 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 no. We weren't misremembering. She's just not in this book a lot. She's there for the arrival of Keone and the ship getting blown aside again, right? Where she yes. also reanimates Festus the dragon. Which is a huge deal. Huge deal. And important to the plot of the next book. It's a power-up that it's like not really reflected on it really kind of strangely but it's also really cool it's only not reflected on because every time it gets brought up in subsequent chapters and in the next book it's followed by no idea how that worked but and then people just continue <laughs> pushing right along she's a sword fighter now i guess it's just more power up delightful she has a really close friendship with hazel a friendship with hazel is good hazel teaches how to sword fight this also feels like a pivot remember when last book every single piper chapter and there were many of them was about the Fucking cornucopia. cornucopia. <laughs> what humorous food can I bring out of this cornucopia? I don't know, Rick. I've heard enough about ham. Shooting lightning. <laughs> Leo's throwing fire. Percy is summoning a hurricane. Piper hit them in the face with a ham. Silly pretty lady. Well, we'll be hearing more from Piper in the next book. He and Hazel both have god-tier magic now, so I'm feeling pretty confident going into this next book about whose asses we're going to kick. It's gonna be great. That's true. That's true. It it gets better. Hashtag. Anyway, it gets better. Speaking, it's better. It's Jason. <laughs> Jason's next. Most improved. Stepping back, stepping away, making choices, making any choices at all. Having a personality, having thoughts about what you want to do in the future, and doing acknowledging your based thoughts, on goals, acknowledging those acknowledging. thoughts, honoring some thoughts and not others. Yeah. Feeling free to step away, similar to Persebeth. It feels like a therapy level up in this book, even though, of course, no one gets therapy. That would be too good. We just can't have that. Um, <laughs> Jason is a real journey. <laughs> he has a real emotional journey, which is not something we could say, I think, about most of these people. I would say Persebeth has an emotional journey. Frank, unfortunately, has an emotional journey. Um, Leo, sort of, if you can call it that, but I feel like Jason really has an honest-to-goodness introspection moment <laughs> through which he absolutely he does learns from his friends and reflects on those internally and makes changes in his life which is nice yeah the section with oster is really awesome where oster is forcing him to make decisions and basically reading him for filth <laughs> yeah destroying him tearing him to pieces and then jason reflecting on that improving that's the last time he is featured as a narrator um this section i think it is written for the type of person who would read the lost hero and say yes jason very good jason center of the journey jason natural born hero who i will be following more than i'll be following these other characters if you weren't like that i feel that there's less perhaps to learn and it but it rubs me the wrong way a little bit as someone who is not like that to see jason being right. like wow other people can also do things that's really exciting i don't have to be at the center of everything all the time what an idea. Like, I always had those ideas about him. I always had those ideas about other people. But I think it's important for Jason to experience these things, even though I'm a little irritated as he's experiencing them. I'm actually less irritated only because he and Persebeth are the oldest, and they are having very similar journeys in this book of stepping down and stepping away. I also think that the thing that makes this arc possible in this book is that he is never in the same room at the same time as Percy that Percy mm, is mm, gone mm -hmm. in another place and he is the one who automatically assumes leadership at the start of the book in that 
meeting down in the Argo 2. Yeah, that's true. Because when Percy is around, I feel as though, I don't have specific citations for this, but I feel as though so much of Jason's, what little we get of his reflecting in Mark of Athena or wherever else is about Percy and being like, oh, a lot of inadequacy. I, Percy this. And yeah. like, I need to step up so that Percy doesn't have to do everything. <laughs> they're so similar obviously intentionally Hera blah 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 that it's hard for them to have individual arcs that aren't butting up against each other when they're together so Jason being the de facto leader of this quest and allowing Frank to step up is very nice structural genius great job yes great job structurally the fact that Jason's last word is in the Oster chapters where he decides that he's going to step back and then he doesn't speak again it's not his perspective for the rest of the book and yet we see him back as someone who's being yeah. spectated, as someone who's in the background. How delightful. We love that. Yeah. He's unfortunately not in the background of the next book. He also <laughs> unfortunately spectates <laughs> Nico. Um, B plus. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, yeah, we should have been giving them grades. <laughs> oh, are we getting, let's, let's go back. Let's go back. Um. Persebeth, A plus. A plus. A plus. Hazel, A. Nico, coming out of scary. Absolute C minus. Barely passing. <laughs> Mostly traumatizing. I think as a character, how he has grown in this, unfortunately, trauma does sometimes cross growth. A plus. Um, it's the fact complicated. that he's still alive. <laughs> a plus. Survived Tartarus. Survived being kidnapped and starved. Survived trauma outing with Jason. A plus. A plus, Nico. We're so proud of you. We're so proud of you. You did it. You're still here. Please take a vacation after this, even though you won't. Um... Leo, D. <laughs> solid D. Doesn't pass. Isn't an F, though. Solid D. And he solid probably D. would like that. He'd be like, yeah, the solid D, you know? I'm impertinent. Impertinent in an irritating <laughs> way. <laughs> Not in a Percy way. <laughs> Piper, Piper's limited participation gets a B minus from me. Um, and as she, a character, she, she gets she an A minus. When she was narrating. Piper gets an A minus for still being with Jason. <laughs> room for improvement. There's room for improvement. Offering suggestions. Okay, Jason. A. A for Jason. I'm going to take it to A minus, Nico. For Nico, yeah. <laughs> Those chapters Points where she was off. like, oh my god. Wow, I guess being gay is okay. Now that I know a gay person, let me tell you that it will be okay for you to come out now. And it leads us to our last discussion, which is Frank. For whom I want to give a B plus overall. I'm a generous C minus across the board. <laughs> 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 as my way of trying to be empathetic to other people who really enjoy this journey personal like gut reaction would be generous like, c minus <laughs> gut react like if it were just me in a room alone reacting it would be d personality d plus writing <laughs> but no i i appreciate other perspectives i'm a person with empathy generous c minuses <laughs> me an empath <laughs> Do we have to reflect on this? Frank's journey, Frank is one of the last perspectives in the book and nothing really happens to him after he gets his praetorship, power up, co-leading the army of the dead with Nico scene, right? I feel personally it is unsettling to juxtapose this against the other journeys that we've had, um, which is why we bring it up now and last in this wrap up. To me, I'm the one who decided the order of this outline today. <laughs> it's certainly an opposite journey from most of our other characters. Well, no, that's not true. I mean, everybody experiences a power up versus Jason and Persebeth, which experience a stepping back. Mm -hmm. 
And for Frank, who has been a figure of insecurity, somebody who struggles with his self-image, maybe even his masculinity, Mm -hmm. I'm happy for him. I just want him to stay 10 miles away from me at all times. (laughs) Very scary. Linebacker. Terrifying. Um, (laughs) Football references? Rick, do you know your audience? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I I would really, maybe we should do an Instagram quiz about this. I'm really curious about who um, among our listenership, when they first read this book, had like an actual reference point for what a linebacker was that was not just football man. (laughs) You know, linebacker as a position in football as opposed to linebacker football person or linebacker sports person. <laughs> oh, no idea. Anyway, let's let's synthesize across the whole book. What, what have we gathered from this? What have we learned? What, how do we think that this worked overall as a work? Because I don't feel like we really took a beat to reflect on that at the end of our last episode. I really like the mirror journeys. I think that it makes sense. And the amount of overlap between the two teams advancing to the doors of death mm-hmm. from the two sides really works mm-hmm. for me where some people are powering up yes. some people are stepping back the symmetry the symmetry the symmetry and asymmetry exactly the stakes of it all the pacing so good chef's kiss also something that can only happen four books nine books into a series mm-hmm. yes <laughs> where we know so the much ninth, about the ninth Rick. book payoff is very true it's the fourth book payoff for obviously most of the characters but the ninth book payoff for Persebeth absolutely makes a difference there's no world in which you write this book without having written eight books before it as yeah. far as as yes. hard, how hard Persebeth hits the history we take with us and also the parallel with battle of the labyrinth how these books line up together increasing the stakes being underground, having terrifying <laughs> new magical elements brought in, obviously the actual labyrinth coming back at the end, preparing for the final battle, yeah. fourth book realness. It's like the last prerequisite to make it to the final battle that is like almost as large as the final battle, at least in sort of the battle of the labyrinth case, but definitely in this one, like the doors of death as stakes in this book are really, I don't know, they're kind of uh, interesting to me in that I sort of forget about it at many points in this book that what we're fighting for is for death to keep going. Beautiful. (laughs) Well, also thinking so much about death and who we kill and what death means for mortals versus monsters versus non-monstrous beings that turn to dust. Giants, titans, gods, demigods. Oh, our ideals. (laughs) (laughs) Erica, you have, as we're reflecting on this, you have recently been casually calling this the best book out of the series. Am I wrong? And I just feel that this is a great opportunity for you to elaborate upon that. I can't believe that I need to elaborate on that. <laughs> no, but we basically said it just as we were talking about that. I think that the pacing and the stakes makes this book one of the best, period. But add in the Persebeth of it all. Add in this sudden mulling over of the consequences of our actions which is not something that you see very often in young adult literature because usually in young Mm -hmm. adult literature i feel like we are just coming to terms with the fact that we can do actions in the first place we don't think about the consequences just yet and also in like a fantasy book where there's a lot of fighting rarely do we think this in depth about what the magic system of death entails for all kinds of beings. And it's not like it comes to an answer, like don't kill anyone or anything like that, but just the thinking of it and hopefully taking something of that into the future of wondering how violent I'm going to be, wondering what kind of hero, quote unquote, I want to be. What even does it mean to be a hero? The partnership. The partnership. And all the silly little video game side quests that Percy and Annabeth do in this book are so satisfying. (laughs) Even when they're absolutely balls to the wall, running through the mansion of night, ridiculous. It's still very 
that level it really did feel like video game level and the exploring of tartarus is also what makes it feel like the battle of labyrinth where every chapter is a new door opening to us a new zone yes before this book came out when we were in the waiting period between mark of athena and house of hades i was really afraid and i was like how are they going to wrap this up but also how can you write tartarus such that it feels real and looming and that there are stakes but also that they don't kill them because i would be really upset if they both were to die even though maybe that's good writing but also no it wouldn't be um the way that he sticks the landing on that is really incredible and not something that i was able to predict at that time it's such a difficult yeah rick really does not hit us over the head with the tartarus being dark and evil thing either because he gives us these moments of levity with ridiculous characters He allows Percy and Annabeth to conquer a lot of characters with their wit like they normally do. He lets them banter and be funny in the face of death. The moments of peace in Tartarus too. The moments of peace hit so hard. The like shrine. And then when the mist drops and they actually see Tartarus as it is is for those brief moments. And when Tartarus manifests, it hits hard because he doesn't do it the entire time. You wrote a final note here about structural powerlessness and climate change, Carter. Yeah. (laughs) In the wake of Don't Look Up, shall we discuss how to appropriately, allegorically discuss the terror of climate change in media in a way that is effective and motivating and also silly and fun? <laughs> I Okay, I feel like the climate change of it all, the structural powerlessness, the responding to a looming crisis that could maybe be solved through collective action, but also probably will not be. It does it well. They just keep going, but also experiencing real terror and like, feeling the weight of the situation all the time, I felt very seen by that particular description. It really aligns so well with the Mm day-to-day malaise and terror that I experience. (laughs) Yeah. The collective action of not only do we have all the seven demigods plus Reyna, Nico, Coach Hedge, we also have all of Camp Half-Blood and Camp Jupiter on the line here. And we need to get both of them on the same page. And we also have to get the gods on the same page. We literally cannot defeat the giants without getting the gods on our side, these older people who are absolutely immobile and unmoving, (laughs) (laughs) unchanging, constant. I also feel that in the day-to-day terrors of our lives right now. I I think that the Tartarus versus Gaia, the way that it goes with these two colossal forces of pre-nature almost, I think like between the two of them, we have a really nice mapping for what it feels like. to be living in the era of climate change and everything else. They don't like actually defeat Tartarus, right? They make it out alive after making really incredible, terrible sacrifices. The fact that it kind of does not work and that they are not able to superhumanly defy the odds and defeat the enemy in Tartarus. I think it's a good parallel. Like with those two stories combined, I think we have a good, I don't know, like keep going, even though everyone is probably gonna die. The juxtaposition works very well from there. Mm-hmm. All right. Is it mailbag time? I think we should take a quick break and then we'll be back with um, some mailbagging and then we're going to start a new New Year's tradition here on the show. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okie dokie. 
We have gotten a ton of <laughs> voice messages since we last did a mailbag. We won't be able to play all of them on air, but we do listen to all of them. And we really appreciate all of the voice messages and the kind DMs and the Twitter ats and the TikTok comments. <laughs> um, okay, I'll start playing some. Hey, it's me, your favorite Stranger Things character again. <laughs> um, I was calling because I had an observation that I've made recently in rereading the House of Hades. Um, I noticed that there are a lot of similarities to the Battle of the Labyrinth. We see Kelly, Calypso, Garyon, that three-chested dude. So I was wondering, why do you think there are so many callbacks to that specific book? Does Percy see this as a time in his life where he is most flawed? Or is this just some random um, inconvenience? I would like to know your thoughts. Um, also, one more thing. I think Nika would have made an excellent witch. We see a lot of females in the Percy Jackson universe become witches, um, like Calypso and Medea. But I think him and Hazel really would have had a bonding moment if she would have showed him some about witchcraft. I think it would, be, I think it would have been cool. That was Jacob Byers, whose voice messages we have played on the show before. Thank you for sending us that. This was also <laughs> sent to us literally in August. So it's been a long time. And we've obviously talked a lot about the Battle of the Labyrinth since then. <laughs> I like that point about Percy reflecting upon the Battle of the Labyrinth as his most flawed point and having yes. to reflect upon that as they go through Tartarus. That was when he kissed Calypso <laughs> and was worrying about Rachel Elizabeth Dare and... <laughs> Also kissed Annabeth. <laughs> it's true. I would also like to imagine that Nico, at some point down the line, probably does take some witchcraft lessons. I have to imagine that Hazel teaches Nico a little magic. Also, we have confirmed now that shadow travel is essentially mist manipulation. So Nico does do a little magic. Yeah. All right. This is from MK. Hello there. Um, I'm Mira. Um, I love you guys' podcast so much. Um, you, you guys are actually the first podcast I ever listened to, and you also helped me, um, like, you also helped me a lot, um, in, like, a bunch of ways, um, and you guys also pushed me to over, to now overanalyze the books when I go back and read them which um i guess thank you and it also inspired me to you guys also inspired me to make my own podcast so thank you so much you guys are amazing um bye oh that was delightful oh my god Aww. i'm glad that you're over analyzing everything <laughs> but also take breaks also take breaks just regular analyzing is fine sometimes yeah, sometimes you can just enjoy, I promise. That was so sweet. Oh. That was so sweet. Congrats on making your own podcast. All right. Hi, Seaweed Brain. Um, my name is Tal, and I wanted to record this, like, after the episode with um, Nico and Cupid aired, because we all know that, like, Jason sucks and that he should not have been the one with Nico. But what we, I don't think was said was that the perfect person to be there would have been Piper. Um, one, because Piper's better than Jason, and everyone knows this, but two, because it would have expanded on what Brick was trying to start in Lost Hero about, like, the bad side of Aphrodite. 
and it just would have been better. And like, it would have, we would have seen, um, Piper kind of seeing that like she's better than Cupid and that not all sides of Aphrodite are good. Um, and I just think that would have been a better story and it would have actually finished what Rick tried to start in Lost Hero. Okay, bye. Okay, Tall, you're so right. That's fascinating. <laughs> Not only about Piper being better than Jason, but <laughs> we appreciate your <laughs> unmoving dedication to Jason slander. <laughs> but yeah, that is so true. Giving Piper something else to think about, about the positives and negatives of love and what kind of love does Aphrodite represent? Is it scary yeah. hetero love or all kinds of things? <laughs> And also, Piper's on her own journey about that, so... Very that. There are also a lot of moments in the first set of books where Percy meets other children of Poseidon, and he has to go through this whole thing where he's like, I get to make a choice about this. I am understanding all the elements of, like, my father's nature, what he has done, like, the havoc he has wreaked upon the world. And I think it would be nice for Piper to experience more of that beyond fighting Drew Tanaka, which was kind of unfortunate. Yeah. This is a good idea. I would not thought about this before. I love it. All right. This is from Olivia C. Hello, Erica and Carter. So I definitely think Purse Beth is the greatest love story of all time because I truly think they're a unique relationship compared to others because we get the first series where we get to see them as best friends and they develop such a trust and then they fall in love. And that would have been a great love story already. But then we get the second series where we get to see their dynamic and a romantic relationship and how devoted they are to each other. And then I think House of Hades is the ultimate test of that devotion because they literally proved they would die for each other. Um, And so to sum it up, I just think that I've never encountered another relationship with this level of development and devotion. And so they're the best. Um, so thank you for your service as the Purse Beth podcast and goodbye. It's us. We are. Stevie Green is so brave for providing this service. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. My one counter as always is if Kaz Brecker and Inej had been given nine books, (laughs) they would be equally as powerful. (laughs) Period. Maybe even more powerful. All right. This is a message from Zeki. Hi, my name is Zeki, and my favorite Persebeth development moment in the House of Hades is it's got to just be that when Annabeth and Percy are both at their darkest moments, when Annabeth feels that like overwhelming sense of fear when she's faced with seeing Tartarus for the first time, and when Percy first falls into the water at the very beginning of the book, they both look towards the future that they have together. Like, that's so powerful that that's that's what they turn to to give themselves that last like jolt of hope to really get through to the end and like push through or at least in the beginning it was to start pushing through and start getting through Tartarus and that's why I think they're the greatest love story of all time is that when they need to push through their best course of action is to think of their future together <laughs> so true Besky it's true Nothing to add. No comment. Just support. (laughs) Thanks, Seki. This is from someone familiar. Hi, hello. It's Elizabeth. And y'all know this is my favorite book because of the high quality Persebeth moments that Rick Riordan's written. I do love Dark Percy very much with the poison, but I'm going to say the end of the book is my favorite Persebeth moment because it's a literal 
breath of fresh air after a very intense journey and fight and it's both a callback to like their shared past because he's gazing at the stars with Annabeth and Percy is thinking like oh she taught me these constellations so long ago and it's also like looking forward because Annabeth is like when this is all over we're gonna make these plans and Bob says hello just (laughs) it's so heartwarming and heartbreaking and I just love it so so much yeah we didn't talk enough about the just wait until this is all over line but it's so good I don't have anything to add either. It's a great section. Yeah. <laughs> great section. Here's a message. Last one from Allison. Hi, Carter and Erica. I love the podcast. Um, something I haven't heard anyone mention is uh, Hazel's age. Because I know in the text it said she's 13, but could she technically be 14? Because we know she turned 13 in, De- in December 1940, whatever, and then died the following summer and then nico brought her back to life and when she came to camp jupiter it was like september october she knew jason briefly before he disappeared and then she was we know she was at camp jupiter until june i think when um the son of neptune events happened so months have passed december passed her birthday passed so is she technically 14 and we all just haven't been doing the math right anyway would love to hear your thoughts on that um love the podcast have a great day bye Yeah, so the first time we did the Hazel episode, people relentlessly DM'd me various articles, (laughs) Tumblr posts, timelines, text posts, tweets about Hazel's age. And what Uh I came to the conclusion of was that there actually is inconsistency in the text and that Rick doesn't know how old she is. (laughs) Yeah, there's some things that are inconsistent about apparently with other characters' ages as well. So it's likely that she's 14 it's not proven. Doesn't make a big difference. Your personal call. <laughs> about everything. Either way. Not the same, yeah. but almost the same. I still don't ship Frazel, but that's okay. Still that. Still that. <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely complicated. Um, and if somebody wants to resend me that one timeline that points out how Rick forgot about how old Hazel was, I will post it. Um, <laughs> thank you, Allison. <laughs> and I'm going to read out loud one message from Eliana to close us out. Okay, so I have a thought for you about House of Hades when Persebeth is facing down the actual god Tartarus. In The Lightning Thief, when Percy has his battle with Ares and beats him, Ares curses him and says Riptide will fail him when he most needs it, right? Percy obviously thinks that this moment is when he's facing Atlas in Titan's Curse, page 252. Thank you for the citation. But what if it's when Tartarus's manifestation is about to kill them and Percy drops his sword on page 517 of House of Hades? We're in Annabeth's POV and she says she'd never seen him do anything like that before. Am I overthinking? Maybe, but it's food for thought. Also, just wanted to add, I absolutely love your podcast. You guys are awesome. Hilarious. Seaweed Brain makes the world a better place. Dude. Oh, God. <laughs> Eliana, dude. That's correct. Oh, my God. I think there's no world in which you're not right about that. That's a good call about it. It's right. I've never heard anyone say that before. Dude. This is Atlas. He had also just held up the sky. So there's like lots of reasons that his arms would have been tired. Would have been tired? His arms would have been weak. Also, like the degree is different. Wait, no, that was right before he held up the sky. Never mind. Either way, hey, 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 hey. This makes sense. Two greatest (laughs) books in the series Titan's Curse and House of Hades, baby. (laughs) Showing those flaws, showing that fatigue. This is incredible. Thank you so much for this. This changes my whole perspective, and I will go back and read page 252 of Titan's Curse. (laughs) All right. This concludes our mailbag portion. We 
are going to begin a new New Year's tradition. <laughs> I feel like we're doing an episode of iCarly today because we have these segments and we're like transitioning between segments on our web show. <laughs> we have cited many times before our parent podcast, not as in that they have anything to do with us or financially or emotionally support us, <laughs> but in that we feel supported by them and they have inspired our work here. The NPR Pop Culture Happy Hour. <laughs> As a tradition, shout out to you, Glenn and Linda and Aisha and Steven. PCHH does a tradition every year where they do predictions and set resolutions for the following year. And then at the end of that year, they listen back to their old predictions and resolutions and make new ones. And with the goal in mind that we will be still doing this podcast a year from now. And equally successful to Pop Culture Happy Hour. Um, We will be peers in the industry. (laughs) We will be hired by NPR. That's my first resolution. (laughs) Be acquired by NPR. (laughs) Um, In all seriousness, we're very grateful to all of our listeners who have stuck with us for a year and a half now. And for all of the guests that dedicate their time, we also shout out our other podcasters who are some of my dearest friends these days. And I love all of them. And thank you to those who came to our uh, fundraiser live stream a few weeks ago. We'll be sure to do one of those again soon. And I'm sure we'll have a gigantic, ginormous collab when we finish Blood of Olympus. <laughs> Shall we start off with some predictions for 2022 as far as the Percy Jackson Riordanverse goes? Carter, you want to start us off? Okay. My first prediction has to do with the Nico and Will book. As far as the content of the book, I am going to predict at least two long-form flashbacks for Nico, one of which is right around the time of Bianca's death, and the other of which is um, him alone in Tartarus. I I expect we're going to get a lot of trauma rehashing in this book. (laughs) My prediction for the Riordan verse for 2022 is that we will have a casting announcement for the Disney Plus TV show of all main characters by the end of the year. And I'm going to go ahead and say we will have a trailer, at least one trailer for the series before the end of 2022. And... My prediction is also that it will make me cry when I watch it. <laughs> and I also Are predict many of you will also cry. If they have a trailer, that will probably assume that they've like shot at least a pilot then, right? I'm going to assume that they're going to start shooting by the end of 2022. I could Guess be wrong. Okay. I could totally be wrong, especially given COVID restrictions and how 2022 <laughs> plays out. We'll see. But that is my 2022 prediction. And let's go ahead and make a media or book or Percy Jackson related resolution for the next year. Carter, go ahead. I feel like low-hanging fruit would be to finally read the fucking Trials of Apollo. (laughs) That's what I was going to (laughs) say. We can do a joint one of that, but I feel like that's sort of baseline, given that we will be moving into the last book that we have read very soon. I was going to pick one of these specific Ryden Presents books to Mm. get on my list in addition to the trials of apollo and i had one picked out already but i'm forgetting which one it was dragon pearl yes yeah that's the sci-fi one right Mm -hmm. yeah i think my resolution for this year is to read one book by every rrp author whoa even if they're not the rrp books Mm, mm, and mm. to also read some of marco shiro's books oh i'll throw that one in too yeah some anger is a gift i'm like 50 pages in right now you can do that i can do that 
I know how to read. Other resolution is nothing having to do with podcast scheduling because I must give myself grace for these things. (laughs) But one of my goals for this year is to do more movies, special episodes, so that we can start dipping our hands in talking more about television and cinema as we prepare ourselves for the future of hopefully podcasting about the show when it comes out. Okay, yeah. Is there anything else? I think that's it. I think that's it. Well. Looking forward to seeing you this time next year to be proven wrong. Either way, you know, happy new year. Happy new year. It's going to be your year. It might be exactly the same. It might be exactly the same. Systems in place that perpetuate certain wrongs in our world don't go away January 1st and every year is mostly the same. However, however, your personal play will be stronger. You will glow up. You will talk creatures to life. You will take up arms or maybe if you're ready, you will set them down. Yeah. We will see you in a couple weeks. It's time to start the Blood of Olympus! Woo! Woohoo!